From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Constitutional carry is sweeping the country. Ohio and other states seek to limit the power of government during emergencies. David Chipman has been denied the head job at the ATF, and Ohio's repeal of duty to retreat has inspired other states to do the same. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by John Weber, State Director with NRA ILA. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dean. Great to be back. Well, John, this has been a really busy year. We've been working here in Ohio, and I know that you've been working hard on the federal level. I just wanted to give you one more chance to be on the podcast in 2021 this year to give us an update on what's going on nationally. One of the big things that's happening just everywhere is constitutional carry, and and we're trying to deal with that here in Ohio, but it's it's happening in a lot of other states. Now, my understanding, John, is that we have 21 states that now officially have some form of constitutional carry, permitless carry, whatever you want to call it, and five happened just this year. Which states got constitutional carry this year? Yeah, that's right. 21, five this year, including uh, we added this year, Iowa, Montana, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah. So it's moving quick. Five in a year, 21 total. Uh, This is a a real movement. It's not just a group or multiple groups pushing a piece of legislation. It's also a true grassroots movement right now. You're seeing it spread around the country. Well, I suspect that we've had so many states sign on to this recently because of what we've been seeing last year, what we've been seeing this year, mostly in big cities where laws are not being enforced, violent criminals are being released, citizens are left basically feeling like they have to defend themselves. Has this been part of the argument in testimony for constitutional carry recently? It's certainly something we've been discussing a lot, and it's because it's because it's real. You see it happening every day. Uh, people can't help but have that reaction when they see the things that are going on in their streets. They see movements to defund the police, or at the very least, you know, cut them off at the knees and disincentivize them from doing their job. It's been made very clear to people that they are responsible for their own safety. There's no guarantee that somebody's going to be there to help you, um, and there's no guarantee that if they show up, they're going to be able to or willing to actually do anything due to the environment and the constraints police are under these days. So between that and COVID and everything else, um, you know, people have been not only purchasing firearms at record rates, they've been applying for permits at record rates. And now we're seeing constitutional carry moving very quickly. Like we said, five states added this year and um, already pre-filed in Indiana for their legislative session next year, just passed the Senate in Pennsylvania about a few weeks ago here, and obviously making its way through the legislature in Ohio. Yeah, and this is not just conservatives 
and current gun owners going out and buying more guns. I mean, what we're actually seeing now is an expansion of gun ownership. I've had neighbors ask me about buying firearms. I've read articles from, you know, dedicated longtime liberals saying, you know what, I don't really like guns, but I'm going to buy one because everything is breaking down in my city. There's a guy I know in Portland who's a, a dedicated liberal, uh, you know, longtime guy on the left, and he's buying firearms now, just like everyone else, because this is kind of a bipartisan thing. When your city is not enforcing laws, when you're seeing cities like San Francisco, where they basically say, you know, if it's less than $950, that's fine, go ahead and steal it. It's, it's, it's nuts. And everybody realizes what a crazy situation that is. So what we're actually doing through all this, not that I'm happy about this situation, but when society starts to break down, everyone realizes that it's not about politics anymore. It's about self-defense. It's about common sense. And we're seeing the, the pool of gun owners across the United States expand dramatically. And so it's not just constitutional carry. It's not just legislation. There's a mind shift going on. It is. There's a self-protection mindset going on. Uh, you're seeing it across all parties, all demographics. Uh, and in fact, females and minorities are buying firearms for the first time at a higher rate than um, other groups. So it is what happens when a conversation that for years has been, you know, had in the media and has largely been theoretical or ideological, and it has now run headlong into reality. And I think that's why, you know, as you stated, people are now seeing this as common sense. It's not just this idea anymore about guns and this vague conversation you have in the media about weapons of war and these sorts of things. It's reality. People at some point have to believe their eyes and they are, and they're, they're showing that with their purchases and their exercising of their second amendment rights. We actually have multiple bills with constitutional carry now in Ohio and we have declared this very clearly as our top priority. And it's moving, and it's moving very well. What other states have this in the works? You, you know, we've had states pass it, but are there other states that are working on it? Yes, uh, Alabama, it's uh, very likely to kind of go through there. Indiana's still working on it. Pennsylvania's working on it. They have a governor who's promised to veto it. But those are the three states where I think it has the most momentum and might take us up to 24. I think there's a real chance in all three of those places. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that Ohio is uh, 22nd. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I uh, prefer for that to get in there first. It keeps the yeah. momentum going, you know, whatever you can do, especially where you are there, where you border with West Virginia in some places. Uh, if we could add you guys and then Indiana, and we can have a nice little region there and continue to expand around the country where people are realizing that the police aren't always there for them and that people that especially that have gone out and purchased a gun for the first time realize it's a little more complicated than the media has made it out to be. And some of these things that seemed like sensible regulations in the past, you know, maybe it doesn't make so much sense anymore to tell me I have to get a government permission slip, pay a fee, take a class and buy, you know, a couple boxes of nine mil at a dollar around do that class. Yeah. I mean, constitutional carry, uh, as, as you said earlier, has often been looked at as some sort of theoretical 
political exercise, but really it's practical. It solves a lot of problems. You know, it, it allows the exercise of constitutional rights. It eliminates expensive fees and costly training. We've been talking about that it might cost a couple hundred dollars to uh, get a uh, carry license here in Ohio. But really, you know, when you add in training, when you add in gas, when you add in taking off work, it can get a lot more expensive than that. So constitutional carry solves that problem. Last year, we saw a big logjam in the sheriff's offices for license processing. Constitutional carry solves that. It also, when you're looking at uh, victims of domestic violence, it solves that problem because you don't have to apply for a license. You don't have to wait around and, and worry about it. You can immediately protect yourself. Exercising a right is very important. It sounds like I'm, I'm you know, Captain Obvious on that. There's really no other constitutional right that forces you to jump through so many hoops to exercise the right. So constitutional carry really just sweeps away all of those hoops you know, so that you can exercise the right in the same simple way that you could with, you know, voting or going to church or, you know, all of these other rights, uh, free speech. There's just no other right that, that forces you to do so much to get to the point where you can exercise the right. Exactly. There's no other right you have to petition to exercise and get permission from the government in some cases to do so. And to your point, you know, especially on that domestic violence point most times statistically if a threat is made in a domestic violence situation if someone says they're going to kill their partner that threat is generally acted on within 48 hours and i don't care how quick a state is that's not fast enough for the person in that position yeah there's no way that you you can get a license a normal license has to be issued within 45 days so that's about a month and a half and you can get an emergency license but that's not going to be within 48 hours. There, there's exactly. no way. And, you know, and it's that's who this type of legislation is for. And for the people that have a hard time coming up with the money, the time to go petition the government for their rights. And all of the things that we've heard about what would happen if we remove this licensing requirement, you know, the same things we heard when concealed carry was first moving across the country is, you know, the Wild West, the blood in the streets. Well, now at 21 states, and with FBI data for a few years to look back at these states, none of those predictions have come true. Not in the least bit. In fact, you know, murders, violent crime has been flat or gone down in a lot of these states. Police officers aren't being killed. It has not been at all the problem that they say it is. It's just allowing people to exercise a right and responsible people do so responsibly. Well, we have blood in the streets, but it's not because of passing legislation. It's because laws are not being enforced. I mean, there are cities that have a higher murder rate last year in 2020 or in 2021 than they've ever had before. Columbus, Ohio is one of them. And, mm -hmm. you know, that they're breaking records. So we have blood in the streets, but it's not because we're passing gun laws. It's because we don't enforce the laws that are already on the books. It's exactly what we've been telling them for years. Enforce the laws. Like, you know, don't rob people, don't murder people, don't rape people. Enforce those laws. And, and once you put people in prison, keep them in prison. Don't let them out. I mean, this it's just insane what's, what we're seeing going on across the country. We're, we're seeing exactly what we've been warning about 
uh, in very stark detail uh, across the country. And the places where we do see blood in the streets, the most blood in the streets, is usually places where the right to bear arms is most restricted. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, it's, it is so obvious. I'm not sure why everyone can't see it, but I think that a lot more people can see it now. And that's why constitutional carry is moving. There's another concept that's moving, and this is one of our top two priorities beyond everything else. Uh, and it's uh, what we've been referring to as the emergency bills or limiting emergency, um, limiting government power in declared emergencies. So constitutional carry and these emergency power bills are our two biggest priorities. John, can you explain what these bills are about? We've covered it on this podcast, but it's a little bit more complex than constitutional carry. It is. The emergency powers legislation is a guardrail. It is a safeguard. It is a constraint on the government. And it's also a kind of a piece of um, more long view legislation, I would say, uh, as compared to constitutional carry. Whereas if we pass that, you'll feel the effects immediately. Right now in Ohio, um, you didn't have a huge problem uh, during COVID. Governor actually was relatively reasonable with regards to Second Amendment rights. Places though, like Michigan, we saw them shut down firing ranges, gun stores, and we saw efforts like that all throughout the country, not just on the state level, but on the county and local level, overzealous county commissions, those sorts of things, using this opportunity, because you can't let any opportunity go to waste, to gather more power for themselves by restricting the rights of their citizens. So this type of legislation sets up clear limits on what the government is allowed to do and not allowed to do in a state of emergency and basically says you cannot do anything regarding the lawful sale of firearms or the exercising of that right, whether it be at a firing range or in the case of the Ohio bill, also life-sustaining activities such as fishing and hunting. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty sweeping. In fact, when BFA initiated this idea last year and uh, we were talking about it and then we got together with you at the NRA, and we talked to the National Shooting Sports Foundation. We cooperatively wrote these bills, and you know we had amazing cooperation from Scott Wiggum in the House and Tim Schaefer in the Senate. Those are the sponsors of these bills. I mean, we held a press conference. We announced the bills simultaneously in the House and Senate, and it was really what I would look at as a masterclass in how good legislation should be introduced. And these bills are the most comprehensive, the most sweeping bills of their kind anywhere in the United States. Because when we were originally talking about it, I said, you know, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. Let's cover every essential activity that might be infringed in an emergency. And we're not just talking about something like the pandemic. We're talking about natural disasters, terrorist attacks, weather events, basically anything. Uh, you had um, referred to, you know, not letting uh, an emergency go to waste. I, I think you were referring to Rahm Emanuel's quote. If everyone remembers uh, Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago, uh, the official most corrupt city in America, he uh, is quoted as saying, and I, and I wanted to get this in, so I actually wrote it down. Rahm Emanuel said, you never let a serious crisis go to waste. And what I mean by that is, it's an opportunity to do things you could not do before. So 
what he was saying was, you know, when things go off the rails, use that opportunity to accomplish political ends that you couldn't previously. And so it's emergencies when things are going to go off the rails and when rights are going to be infringed. That's exactly right. And that's why actually it was so great to work with you guys, uh, BFA, on this bill. Because as you said, I, I believe, and from looking around the country and talking to people at headquarters, this is the most comprehensive bill of its kind in the country. And we're poised to get it done and add it to the list of states that have been moving on it. This year, uh, it's been moving in other states as well, including Arizona, Montana, both the Dakotas, Texas, West Virginia, and Wyoming. So it's a need that's seen around the country and it's been introduced a few other places as well. But this is something that uh, people are realizing the need for because they've seen the overreach of the government and they can see what happens when Rahm Emanuel's little prediction or advice comes to bear. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. The media gets this wrong, and I've uh, seen some testimony from opponents of the bill it's not getting a ton of people to testify against it, but those who are completely misunderstand it. They look at an early section in the bill that's talking about riots or mobs, and they think that this is about, you know, guys showing up with guns when there's a protest or something and being able to walk around with AR-15s, and, and that's not what this is about. This is, this is not a bill that adds any rights. It's a bill that prevents government from infringing on current rights. And I wish people would read the bill because they're, they're reading like the first page or so and they're not going any farther. Every news story that I've seen has been wrong about what this bill does. Absolutely wrong. And almost to the point, I can't help but think it's intentionally wrong. I mean, not only did they not read past the first page, they didn't realize that some of that language they're so upset about is already an existing code. We're not, we created nothing new here. We didn't change the use of force. We didn't, like you said, create any new rights or expand anything. We put guardrails on and protected people's constitutional Second Amendment right and constrain the government. That's all we're doing here. We're not trying to expand it any more than that. We're not mandating that gun stores have to be open or that people can run into crowds with guns or anything like that. We are trying to protect people's ability to exercise their right and limit the government's ability to take advantage of these crises to consolidate their own power and restrict these individuals. That's what this kind of legislation is about. And the other thing here in Ohio... What a lot of people don't understand is that every city has buried somewhere in their ordinances powers for the mayor or for the city manager where they can do things in an emergency with firearms. And it's a loophole around preemption here in Ohio. So in my hometown, I got them to change that. But, you know, Ohio is a pretty good-sized state. We have what, 11.7 million people. There are somewhere around, um, what, 2,300 cities, villages, and townships, something like that. And there's no way we can go city by city and change the ordinances. So this bill basically will solve problems all over the state on the issue of preemption, at least during emergencies, and prevent something bad from happening. So, you know, this is a very impactful bill. As you say, we're not going to feel it the day after it passes, but 
future generations are certainly going to feel it because it will have the force of law at a time when they really need the government to back off and allow people to exercise their rights. That's exactly right. Back off, allow people to exercise their rights. And also, if there really is a crisis that severe, maybe focus on the actual crisis instead of trying to clamp down on people. This is just one thing you know right off the bat. Don't spend time exploring how to mess with us. You can't do it. Deal with the disaster at hand. Right. Exactly. So another big thing that happened, and we reported on this, but with the NRA, you guys really dealt with this head on. And this is this whole thing with David Chipman. And he was nominated to be the head of the ATF. Now, this was a guy who was an ATF agent. He quit his job, went to work as an advisor, a senior policy advisor for the Giffords organization, which is one of the biggest gun control organizations in the country. And he was really very anti-gun. I think a lot of this didn't come to light until people started looking into his background. And the NRA really led the effort to prevent that nomination from going through. Do you want to walk us through what the NRA did to prevent this guy from heading up the ATF? Yeah, well, we did a number of things. We did over uh, 75 events throughout the country uh, in states and workshops to educate people on the matter, to activate them, to put in comments and contact the representatives and senators on it. Uh, we ran TV ads in some of these key states as well. Uh, we did op-eds and radio interviews and things all over the uh, country to kind of get the word out on this guy because he is a zealot. He is an ideologue and he is someone who has no place heading an agency. I mean, him being head of the ATF would be like some a pharmaceutical executive being put at the head of HHS. How would people react to that? Or you being made head of the ATF? How would people react on the other side, react to that? To put somebody that is so toxic and opposed to the very people they're supposed to regulate up for a position like this shows the contempt that they have for gun owners and the Second Amendment right. I mean, it was every bit as brazen as putting an avowed communist up to be comptroller of the currency. But those are the kinds of things we're seeing um, at the federal level. Chipman, you know, he also didn't do such a great job while he was at the ATF. There were a number of complaints about his job performance there, even complaints of racism coming from him. But that didn't stop the Biden administration from trying to force his nomination through. And in his performance up there on the Hill, I can tell you, he said he wanted to outlaw and ban our AR-15s, but refused to tell Congress what an AR-15 was. So you have that sort of vagueness and that sort of hatred coming from somebody who wants to lead a regulatory agency. It's completely unacceptable. So we threw everything we had uh, at that effort. And fortunately, we were successful in that. Yeah, and how, how does that work? Because when the ATF does something like this, they put a survey out or they you know invite comments on it. Can you explain how that process worked? I and mean, we told people to go to the website and make their own comments. So they were collecting comments from people all over the country, but I'm not sure that everyone was really clear on how that process works. What exactly was that and and how did that factor into him being nominated or not nominated or, you know, just how how did that work? Yeah. So part of the, um, the comment period, the ATF, whenever they do a new rule or regulation or something opens up um, for public comment and takes in everybody's 
whatever letter you want to send in, same way you'd do if you send in um, something to a state rep or uh, a committee in terms of testimony. So they take it all in and they, by law, have to go through it all and tally it all up. So it, it impacts things at the ATF on that level. But the biggest thing that makes the difference there was contacting the senators who have the votes uh, to actually keep this thing in the Senate from ever getting to the ATF. And in that regard, senators like um, Democrats from redder states like John Tester and, and Joe Manchin uh, were put in a spot there where their constituents were telling them, this can't happen. You need to stop this guy. And through a combination of those efforts, uh, the opposition was just overwhelming Combine that with the criticisms of Chipman coming out and the racist accusations, it made it very hard for anybody on the left to defend him. And that's why ultimately he was defeated and his nomination withdrawn. Do you have any idea what kind of statistics there were on positive versus negative comments? Because I don't remember seeing an article about that. Uh, no, I haven't seen a statistical breakdown on it. It's a huge amount of information uh, publicly available. If people want to read through it all, but there's a lot out there. Um, but no, I didn't see a breakdown. I would imagine, though, it was strongly, strongly against Chipman. As I said, you know, he uh, he excited very few people and scared and worried many, many more. So his official status now, he's gone back to Giffords. His nomination has been withdrawn. Is that right? I mean, where, where is that process? Because they're going to have to nominate somebody. That process right now, it is an open spot. There's uh, nobody been nominated to fill it and replace him yet. So we'll see what they decide to do. But yeah, he uh, he had to go back to his old employer hat in hand. They promised him they'd make him a ATF head and get him a new job. And when they couldn't come through on that, I guess they owed him a paycheck. I'm uh, not shedding any tears for that. He was just clearly unqualified. With agencies like that, I mean, I understand there's politics in politics, but when you're dealing with regulatory agencies, when you're dealing with law enforcement, which is what ATF is, it's a law enforcement organization, you shouldn't have politics involved in that. That, that is clearly wrong. I don't think that anyone with, with half a brain wants that to happen. So when we start, and, and we've been seeing this happen, politicizing law enforcement, politicizing regulatory agencies, and doing it so blatantly that even people on the left can see that it's wrong. So I, we really need to get away from that. It's corrosive to our democracy overall. Uh, we can't continue on this way. And fortunately, some people are starting to see that on the other side of the aisle, especially, you know, some of the true people that are actual liberals and not leftist or woke realize exactly how dangerous these things are to the fabric of our society. They can destroy quickly what took us hundreds of years to, to build and what we are still trying to perfect. So uh, one more topic I wanted to cover, and uh, I certainly hope people haven't forgotten about this, but duty to retreat. So last year, we passed a bill to remove the duty to retreat here in Ohio. And early in January of this year, 2021, it was signed by the governor. And so duty to retreat was officially removed. Now, in simple terms, and this is sometimes referred to as stand your ground, 
But basically, the duty to retreat means that you're required by law to attempt to escape before using lethal force. But in practice, what it really meant was that if you had to defend yourself, you then had to prove you could not escape if you're on trial for shooting somebody in self-defense. So basically, you had to prove your innocence rather than the government having to prove your guilt. So removing the duty to retreat, I guess the, the simplest way that I could explain it is that you take the idea of castle doctrine, which I think most people understand. Castle doctrine says that if you're in your home or also in Ohio, in your car, in your, in your vehicle, that you have a right to essentially stand your ground and defend yourself. So the idea of removing duty to retreat takes that concept and applies it everywhere you have a legal right to be. So basically, you have castle doctrine everywhere. And this doesn't change the standard for when you can use lethal force, although that that's how this was reported. Uh, you still have to be in fear of uh, death or great bodily harm, so none of that changes. It just says wherever you are, if you're attacked, you can defend yourself, and you don't have to figure out how to legally explain that you could not run away. And this was a massive victory here in Ohio. So this is all leading up to my question. How many other states have done this? How many other states have eliminated the duty to retreat? Well, uh, there weren't many states that had it initially. There's a handful. But after Ohio moved on it, we've seen it be either removed or modified greatly in Arkansas, North Dakota, and South Dakota. And you're exactly right in your description of this bill. It does not change the use of force. What it does is limit the ability of prosecutors to second guess every little decision you made in the worst moment of your life to go back and pick through the details and say, well, why didn't you do this? Or couldn't you have done that? And what is probably one of the fastest moving, most adrenaline filled, scariest times or situations any human being could be in. And it puts the burden on them to prove that you didn't act justly rather than for you who defended your own life to prove to the government that you needed to defend your own life. It does not change the use of force. It does nothing like of the sort. It just makes it much more difficult for the government to go back and pick through everything you did and second guess what you did to try to put you in jail. Yeah. And we saw that in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial where they were essentially doing that. They were looking at video footage, you know, frame by frame, trying to show what he had done wrong, which was just absurd, you know, because you don't, in, in a real situation that's happening in real time, you're not going frame by frame, you know, a 30th of a second by a 30th of a second to make your decisions. It's all happening and it's happening really fast. And that's what the prosecution was doing in that case. They were slowing down the video footage. And fortunately, there was a lot of video footage to try to make it look as if there was lots of time for Rittenhouse to make a decision. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really just, frankly, a pack of lies, you know, in that particular case. But that happens all the time. And not everybody comes to the public attention the way that Rittenhouse did. No, they don't. And I think the prosecutor in that case kind of put their cards on the table and how they actually believe these situations should go. I mean, he essentially got to the point of saying, you're not allowed to shoot to somebody unless they've shot you. I don't care if they're pointing a gun at you. I don't care if they're swinging a piece of metal or a skateboard at your head. You're not allowed to shoot until you've been shot was basically what they were saying. And that's 
absolutely anathema to everything pre-existing in law and everything we know about self-defense in this country. You don't want to be a victim. You get to defend yourself when you're threatened, not after you've become a victim. Yeah, and I just, again, I just want to be clear in case anyone is confused by this. This passed in Ohio. So we've eliminated the duty to retreat. If you have to defend yourself and you have to go to court over it, you no longer have to prove that you couldn't escape. That is no longer part of the court proceeding now. The state has to prove, if you claim self-defense, the state has to prove that you did something wrong. So Justice Castle Doctrine gives you the benefit of the doubt when you claim self-defense in your home, stand your ground or no duty to retreat gives you the benefit of the doubt when you claim self-defense in all other locations. The authorities must prove that you're guilty of a crime and they don't immediately treat you like a murderer if you can't prove that retreat was impossible. So in a sense, it puts the law more on the side of the victim of the violent crime and less on the side of the person committing the violent crime. Exactly. And you need every advantage you can get if you're in a situation like that. A, that's the way most of our laws are structured and the way it should be. But the amount of time, that's the thing people need to think about too. It's not just what happens to you in court. It's whether or not you end up in court. Even if you're not found guilty before this law was passed, you could end up broke and jobless just due to the accusation. And this is a game changer for people in that regard. That ability to be able to defend your life without having to worry about being alive and otherwise ruined. Um, it, it, it's a big difference because they want to dissuade people from defending themselves. They want to dissuade people from caring. As I said, the prosecutor in the Rittenhouse case made that very clear with what he believed needed to happen before Kyle Rittenhouse could exercise deadly force. That's their viewpoint on the matter. And that is not what the law has widely been believed and written throughout this country for centuries. Yeah, they were actually arguing, and this is almost a quote, they were saying, well, everybody takes a beating sometimes. And the argument was, if you bring a gun, if you have a gun, that is the threat. And so that other people are justified in attacking you. That That is just insane. So everyone, all of us who carry a firearm, we're the provocateurs. And, and so if we're attacked using that argument, the attacker is perfectly justified. And, and we, I guess we should just take a beating sometimes. <laughs> That's their point of view. Not only just take a beating, but in that case, both sides of the conflict were armed. <laughs> both sides were armed. It's not like just one guy was armed. Why was Kyle Rittenhouse provoking something by having a gun there, but the other gentleman with the Glock wasn't? Yeah, that I mean that's that's just crazy and and I think that people can see that and as as we talked about earlier I think there's a a mind shift going on. People are changing their minds because the radical left and I don't mean just those who are quote unquote liberal. I mean there is a radical left in this country who has gained a lot of power, I think mostly through social media. And they are going so far left that they are exposing themselves. And people are now saying, you know what? This is nuts. This is absolutely crazy. Even people who are not too fond of firearms are looking at all this and saying, we're going too far. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think social media is a big cause of it. Now you're seeing a lot of discussions that probably used to happen in living rooms or the corner of a bar out in for the entire world to see. And it, that 10% of loud people on Twitter is forcing these uh, or working with these democratic legislators of the far left to move these sorts of extreme and radical ideas forward that would not have been spoken out loud a few years ago. And Americans are seeing what these folks truly believe, what their end goal is. There is an end goal to this legislation and what they're trying to do. It isn't, it isn't just this one piece of legislation. There's always the next one and the next one and the next one. They have an end goal and they're kind of putting it on display for the country to see right now. And People don't like what they're seeing. They realize it's making their communities less safe, their families less safe, putting them at risk in everything they do in their lives, and then reducing their or removing their ability to call the police and have protection. I mean, the streets are more dangerous. There are fewer police officers. And at the same time, they're trying to take away firearms. What does that tell you about what their goals are? Well, from everything that I'm hearing, John, this might be the topic that is what the next election is all about. Uh, I mean, I know that Republicans are going to seize on this. They're wanting to push legislation to, to uh, uh, fight crime and to push back on a lot of these anti-police, anti-law enforcement efforts that are coming from the radical left. You know, you said it was 10%. I don't think it's 10%. I think it's more like 1% or 5% at the most. It's a really small minority who are very radical, very crazy, but they make a lot of noise. And people are seeing that it's nuts, and they're going to swing the other way in the next election. I, I think we could see when, when the vote is finally in after the next election, we could see dramatic shifts away from Democrats, you know, where you know they, they could lose the House, they could lose the Senate. This could be an absolute rout for them. It will be. I think we've begun to see it in elections in Seattle, New Jersey, Virginia, and other places in the country in 2021. The Democrats were completely caught flat-footed, and the Republican candidates completely overperformed historical averages. And these are the issues. You know, these are the reasons people are doing this because they're seeing the results of democratic policies leading to the absolute destruction of their cities and their communities. And they just won't tolerate it anymore, no matter how much CNN or anything they watch. Of course, their viewerships dropped, what, like 80% this year? Uh, people are tuning out and they're pay waking up and um, they're exercising their rights and they're listening to the Democrats. You are responsible for your safety. No one's coming to help you. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think I think that uh, the pendulum is starting to swing the other way. Thank goodness, and uh, we'll see what's going to happen. Well, John, I know we've gone a little long in this podcast, but you know, you you have such good information, and there's so much going on. I thought we really just needed to spend some extra time on this. Very briefly, what else is going on, or what's coming up on the federal level? Well, the federal level, that's the uh, the big question. We'll have to see who the ATF brings, uh, who Biden nominates next to be ATF director. But the big thing there is that nothing's probably going to happen next year. All of the federal bills that have been introduced in terms of the universal background checks and the assault weapons bans and all these sorts of things have completely stalled out uh, on the House or Senate side. They're not moving. They're very unlikely to move in a election year. And it's very likely that come November and when the next uh, Congress is sworn in in January, 
we will have uh, Republican majorities in at least the House, if not also the Senate, that will make this impossible to do. So we're very optimistic about that. Things seem to be at a complete deadlock right now in terms of anti-gun legislation on the Hill. And uh, our plan is to keep it that way until we, the Republicans regain control. Well, that brings to mind the quote, he who governs least governs best. So maybe gridlock is not such a bad thing on the federal level. Right now, we'll take gridlock all day long. I agree. Well, John, thanks a lot. Very informative as always. I'm sure we'll have you back again next year to talk about what is or isn't going on at the federal level. Maybe we can talk about elections or some other stuff. Any any other initiatives from the NRA? So thanks again for being on the podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon. Appreciate it. Always great talking, Dean. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at buckeyefirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.